I want to give a big shout out to my personal friend, Nancy Valencia, who took me as her guest and the guest of her husband, Brad Wells, to the Richard and Karen Carpenter Performing Arts Center, located on the beautiful campus of California State University, Long Beach, to see the author, Nicholas Kristoff. He is the author, uh, he and his wife are the authors of the book, Half the Sky, and he has a new book that he was discussing tonight in a seminar called A Path Appears. His talk was incredibly powerful. I am so glad Nancy and Brad took me, and I really enjoyed being there with them and our co-congregant at First Congregational Church of Long Beach, Edric Geis, because I would have been bummed had I missed Mr. Kristoff's um, talk, and I went ahead and downloaded from audible.com his book, A Path Appears, and I would encourage everybody to check out his YouTube channel, which is called A Path Appears, where he gives little trailers of some of the stories that are in the A Path Appears book. And once you see these trailers and hear some of these stories, you are so going to want to buy this um, this book or buy the downloadable aud- aud- audio of it. And as a matter of fact, um, in, I, he allowed me to take a picture with him even though I didn't buy the book for him to sign because I showed him on my phone my receipt from Audible and he told me this incredible story. Uh, oh, Some wonderful voice actor um, does the narration on the, on the Audible book. But he told me that the sound engineer who was in the production studio while the narrator was reading the book was so moved by the book that he or she started their own um, nonprofit program to help um, uh, kids in distress that are in their own neighborhood where they lived. That's how moved they were by the book. I thought that was such a sweet story. Like I said, Mr. Kristoff's talk was incredibly powerful, but there are two points he made that me being me, I just have to give some pushback. So at the end of his talk, he allowed the audience to give him questions. And he said, don't hold back. I I want you to give me questions, you know, put me on the spot, whatever. So this extremely dapper um, and very passionate Japanese man who looked to be plus 70 stood up and said that Mr. Kristoff was one of his heroes and that he was having a hard time picking himself up the floor after the Trump election because he felt that a very small number of people compared to the 350 million people that are in the United States um, turned the country around in a direction that is totally the opposite of where it needs to be going. And he was talking about the voters in the two states that made the, the Electoral College win for Trump decisive. And he... Um, this Japanese man was saying that he felt that these about 1 million people, that's what he put, I don't know what the number is, were basically were mean, unempathetic people. Like, how could they vote for this dude? And what, what can we do? He says, do we have to just wait for four years or, you know, I'm, I'm at a loss. And now this man's plus 70, so he doesn't know how long, much longer he has on this earth. So I'm sure the, the state the country is in now is not the way he wants to leave to leave it. So the level of his passion was rather high. Uh, but I feel like it was in the context of his life, above and beyond being a partisan. Um, so Mr. Kristoff was extremely diplomatic. What he said, and I'm paraphrasing, was this. He said, progressives don't have a hard time understanding that when someone is addicted to heroin, 
that addiction came in a context of depression, of abuse, from childhood, of whatever. They, progressives get that. He said, when someone makes a self-destructive choice like addiction, progressives understand that it's in a context. I believe that voting for Trump for those who, who you know, are not rich was a self-destructive choice. But it also comes in a context. So don't be so quick to demonize these people. Let me tell you about the city in Oregon where I grew up. It, it used to be a farming town and it used to have industry jobs. Those went away and that town has been devastated. Meth addiction has come into the town making the men um, have a criminal record or be unmarriageable. And it's just broken the town down. And this is being repeated in so many towns that the people on the, co- on the coast don't see. And that is the context in which these self-destructive voting choices take place. And it's not going to help to get these people to vote the way you want them to vote by pointing a finger at them and calling them ignorant bigots. So um, you, we need to try to be more understanding and empathetic of the suffering that these people are going through. Well, I don't agree with all of that statement. I do agree with the part of the statement where he says pointing a finger and calling somebody an ignorant bigot is not the way you get them to vote the way you want them to vote. And, but he went on to say, there's these people out there, quote unquote, who feel like if we just change the voting rules, you know, that will solve the problem. He said, but you can't change the voting rules if you don't win elections. So we still need these people's votes. Okay. Two things about what he said. First of all, he didn't put what he was saying in historical context. It's gerrymandering, which was totally done on purpose for white supremacy reasons that made the districts such as they are to where Trump was able to get the electoral college win that he did. So I, you know, he, he should have said that. He should have put that out there. It's not just vote. He should have put the United States historical context that made that win possible. But secondly, the heroin addict knows that he or she is wrong, but they're compelled because they're addicted. But they don't think that they're right to be stealing from their parents or doing or prostituting themselves to get their next to get the money to get their next fix. They don't think for two seconds that they are in the right they know they're wrong, but they're addicted. So their body or their brain tells them you need this drug and I'm, I'm, I'm your body that you live in and I'm gonna make you do whatever has to be done to get this drug. But they know they're wrong. People who voted for Trump don't know that they are wrong. And what I mean is wrong on the facts. The man said stuff during the campaign that was factually inaccurate. Ends up, China hasn't been a currency manipulator for decades. Ends up, Global warming is not a hoax that China made up in order to benefit them industrially. Those were straight up factual inaccuracies. And these people thought that they were true. So what can I say to them? I can say to the heroin addict, listen, baby, you know, you don't want to be out here on these streets and I'm going to tax myself. I'm going to increase the amount of tax I pay to get you the clinics that you need to get the, the mental health services that you need and to get the physical medical health services that you need to get off these damn drugs. I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to stop voting for people who want to put you in jail 
and I'm going to instead vote for people who want to raise taxes and spend the money to get the clinics to get you off the drugs. And that heroin addict, when they're ready, you know, it takes, it's a journey, whatever, is going to be like, whoo, I'm glad you said that because I sure don't want to be out here on these streets, but I can't stay away from this damn drug. You go to the Trump voter and say, well, you know, climate change is real and I have some data that I'd like to show you and and your uh, community may be adversely affected by climate change because the winter storms that are coming through might be a whole hell of a lot stronger or your uh, farming community might be affected because there might be droughts in your area that last longer than they have even from when your grandparents remember. They're going to look at you and say, oh, get out of my face with that fake news. So how, I mean, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? The hair, it's not fair to compare the heroin addict because the heroin addict knows he or she is wrong. They just can't help what they're doing. So that's pushback number one. Then the other um, person made a comment and she asked, you know, what's up? Is it, um, is it really a lack of empathy that uh, an empathy gap that's the cause of the problem for people not wanting to see the actual data on what works and what doesn't, or is it straight up meanness? And the data she was talking about was he had, during his talk, put some powerful stats up there about how much cheaper it is to give pe- uh, women access to birth control and um, access to reproductive services. And when you do that, how much more likely it is that they graduate from high school, how much more likely it is that the coming of their first child is delayed until they're actually in a stable relationship that's going to last in their, you know, post teen years and how much money you, the state saves by, um, giving them birth control rather than not giving them birth control. And then they have uh, babies out of wedlock. And then we have these problems. And the, one of the stats he put up there was that the age of initial sexual intercourse is not very far apart from Europeans to United States. The difference is that 30% of U.S. girls are having their first pregnancy before age 19. That is not the percentage. It's not even in the double digits in Europe because of access to birth control and medical care. And he has all these stats up there. PhD people did study after study. And it was pure in peer-reviewed journals and blah, blah, blah. And so he says, here's the thing. Why is there resistance to people doing what has actually been shown to work when you do the studies? He said, I think it's income stratification. That's not the word he used, but it comes down to this. People with money, he said, in the United States, people who don't have money, poor people, And working class people actually give a higher percentage of their income to charity than people who do when you talk about it as a percentage of income. The reason being, he, he feels, they actually interact with people poorer than them all the time and they see with their own eyes what's going on and that causes them to be empathetic and then they give more. Whereas because of income stratification, if you have, if you live in Manhattan in, you know, Trump Tower, 
it's very likely that you could go your whole daily life for months on end maybe and never see anybody who wasn't as wealthy as you except if they're serving you in some kind of way as an employee or whatever. And for that reason, you can make up a narrative in your head about why poor people are poor, about why drug addicted people are addicted. And that narrative never has to bump up against the reality of a real poor person or a real drug addicted person. And therefore you can ignore the facts about what actually works because you've become married to this narrative. That shows, I'm not saying that's not true, but that really shows a profound decoupling of the historical fact about certain things. And the historical fact is from Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, and from the movie that came after, from that book, The 13th, the state, on purpose, instituted rules, regulations, policies, and procedures that were meant to be social controls on people that weren't white and on people who happened to be white but were very poor. And these have continued and they are a great part about why we have the income inequality that we do today. And you cannot decouple the empathy gap from the racial empathy gap. You just can't do it. Because when we have empathy now and we want to do what quote unquote works now, and I'm all for it, for heroin addicts now that they're white, but when they weren't white, we wanted to throw them under the jail. And we, you know, the whole war on drugs, which was, if you read Michelle Alexander's book, is a, a continuation of rules and regulations meant to impose social controls, policing and social controls on black people. So to say it's an empathy gap, you know, just based on class really does not tell the whole story. These pro, the, we don't want to do what, what, we don't want to do what works until the people being affected by what doesn't work are white. That's the situation right there. Now we want to have treatment because the heroin addicts are white. That's, that's what it comes down to. When it wasn't white people, we didn't care about doing what worked. All we wanted to do was punish. That's the facts. So that's my second pushback on, on to Mr. Kristoff's what he said tonight. And I'm going to put this on Twitter and, and mention him and see if he responds. But I really enjoyed his talk and I am so happy that um, I was taken there by my friend Nancy.